Welcome to Sexplicit, a podcast which offers free, quality and up-to-date sexuality education. In this podcast series, we will be talking about sex and sexuality explicitly. No topic is too taboo and no question is inappropriate. This is a safe and educational space to explore your deepest curiosities. My name is Anissa Varaste. I'm a clinical sexologist and this is Sexplicit. Welcome to another episode of Sexplicit. In my work as a sex therapist, people continue to ask me one question more than any other. And this is in fact one of the questions that many listeners have asked as well. And that is, am I sexually normal? Many people are preoccupied or even obsessed with the normality of the sexual fantasies, preferences, responses, frequencies, secrets, turn-ons, turn-offs, problems and their bodies. The fear of being sexually abnormal interferes and even prevents pleasure and intimacy in many cases. So I hear many versions of this question. For example, I take too long to climax. Is this normal? How long should a man be able to keep an erection? How often do most people our age make love? Am I weird if I enjoy oral sex more than intercourse? One thing I would like to highlight is that normal means different things. What is statistically common, what everyone agrees is typical, what authority requires, what is legal, what is considered moral, and many other things. And the concepts of sexual normality have changed even within our own lifetime, and even in one person's lifespan. For example, society's understanding of same-gender attraction and sex as a wifely duty has changed in the last 50-60 years. Or even when you consider what you considered normal or abnormal when you were 15 or 16 compared to what you consider normal now has probably changed. So because normal can mean so many different things, it's an arbitrary social construct. So today we're going to have a look at where this idea of normality comes from and how you can answer the question, am I sexually normal? Our concerns about sexual normality starts in early childhood. All children are sexual beings. We have curiosity as children about our bodies, about sex, about where babies come from, and a variety of implicit and explicit lessons teach children that sex is bad, that anything related, even remotely related to sex, such as nudity or their genitals, is something that is naughty or even rude. It's stigmatized, it's taboo, you shouldn't be talking about certain things. And as sexual beings, learning that our sexuality is bad means learning that we are bad. So as children, we learn to fear being discovered as sexual. 
and to mistrust our own sexual energy, curiosity, and even desire in adolescence. Regardless of where we live, most of us are exposed to a wide range of negative messages about sexuality, especially in childhood and adolescence. Things like, don't feel sexual, don't touch your sexual parts, your body should not be a source of sexual pleasure, wanting sexual contact with another person is wrong, having sexual thoughts or feelings is sick, and even you are not a sexual being, or you shouldn't express your sexuality in any way. So how can a child with any emotional sensitivity not feel sexually abnormal in such an environment? Especially that as children, our survival is dependent on our acceptance by our loved ones, by our caregivers and parents. Therefore, we do anything to feel that we belong, that we're doing the right thing. So then we try to suppress all these very healthy and developmentally typical behaviors and feelings. And then this can all be complicated by the fact that many people give children virtually no sexual information, education or guidance. And many schools who provide sex education, their education is based on abstinence and fear education. And if a child has never been given comprehensive sexuality information and education, then they feel confused about how they're supposed to feel and where they can go to when they have questions, especially if they have continuously received these messages that sex is wrong, it's taboo. So you wouldn't feel comfortable or even safe to go to your to the adults in your life to ask questions. And then we have puberty. We have the first menstrual period, you know, wet dreams, fantasies, our first crushes, our body that is changing constantly in sexual ways. And to teenagers who feel confused and scared about these experiences and don't know where to go, these experiences confirm that there is something wrong with with them or their sexuality. It's very common, I've heard it over and over again from teenagers that they think there is something wrong with them if they have sexual fantasies or if they masturbate. And then during puberty, a lot of solid comprehensive information about sex is withheld from young people out of the fear that it can put ideas in their head. And at the same time, they have access to pornography. I mean, now in the age of internet and accessibility to information, the main source of information for young people and teenagers is pornography, which is obviously not a representation of healthy, typical sexual behavior, because the intention of porn is not education, it's sexual arousal and excitement. And then on top of that, we have other types of media, advertising, television, music, magazines, portray a specific type of sex or a particular type of body, the right type of clothing or sexual attitude that is acceptable. And these all shape our understanding of 
sexual normality. So when there is lack of access to comprehensive sexuality education, role models, guidance and reassurance, teenagers can't possibly know what is sexually quote-unquote normal. And this can disturb them because they feel that it's urgent to be sexually normal. In a world where sex is considered bad, we want to be the least bad sexual being. And this fear of being sexually abnormal continues into adulthood. And these ideas are reinforced by institutions such as the media, the government, organized religion, etc. And they use this as a strategy to sell products, salvation, good citizenship. And it continues to have a negative impact on our sexuality. The next question is, how does this idea of normality affect us in bed? How does it affect our sexuality in real life? One thing is that when we are anxious about being sexually normal, we tend to guard ourselves during sex. So instead of letting our erotic energy guide us, we have this fear of, our erotic energy and our sexuality. We have thoughts such as, will this movement look clumsy? Will my desire intimidate or disgust my partner? Am I wrong to want this? Am I going to be rejected if I request this? Most women or people with a vulva need clitoral stimulation in order to to experience an orgasm. But many women don't ask for it because they think that other women don't need it. And there is this very persistent myth that women should be able to orgasm by intercourse. And then this same woman will criticize herself when she has trouble climaxing. Or some people might like to be held down during sex, but hide it because they're afraid that it's weird, that there is something wrong with them that maybe deep down they have this desire of being submissive and dominated the whole time. But we know that fantasies, desires and reality are are different things. And if you're interested in learning more about what your fantasies mean, you can listen to episode 5. The fear of being sexually abnormal also makes people restrain their body's natural expressions during sex. And refusing to allow our body its sounds, breathing and natural movements inhibits pleasure. Another impact of fear of being abnormal is that we're not fully present during sex. Rather, we tend to observe ourselves and monitor our partner's responses to us. So instead of simply experiencing our body and the sensations and the feelings, we tend to evaluate how we are performing. We decide how the sex should be instead of feeling how it's going and how it feels in our body. Does it feel good? Does it feel right or not? And then sex becomes less of a core creation and more of an opportunity to fail. Another impact of 
fear of being abnormal is that it can inhibit sexual exploration. So we become too scared to even think about something new. What if we discover that we like something that isn't socially approved? And that would make us abnormal, vulnerable, and potentially we would be rejected by our partner or even a broader network. Another impact of sexual fears or fear of being abnormal is that some people tend to then oppose to certain things such as comprehensive sexuality education for children and young people, same gender marriages, contraception, erotic art. And this need to be normal creates this thing that is considered abnormal. And naturally, we want to distance ourselves from it. And then we tend to make it quote-unquote other, not us. And we hate them. So this fear of being abnormal, which starts in childhood, leads us to denying it in ourselves in adulthood. Okay, so how can we minimize the impact of this fear of being abnormal? Apart from what I just shared about the impact of that on our sexuality, people who are overly concerned with being sexually normal find themselves caught in a dilemma. So on the one hand, they're afraid that they aren't normal. They see, they always see ways that they need to be different, that their sexuality is not good enough. On the other hand, many of those people who feel they are normal live in the fear of losing that status and therefore they do anything not to put even a toe outside of that box and that can restrict their sexuality in so many different ways as I just described. So the only way to escape this dilemma or anxiety around normality is understanding that normal is irrelevant. Here are some of the ways that you can do this. Firstly, decide your sexual values. This will be an inner compass when you want to trust your experience. Something either feels good emotionally and physically, or it doesn't. Instead of these social ideas of what is quote-unquote normal, so something that is supposed to be right or wrong. And then you discuss your sexual values with your partner. Now, a question that many people ask here is, does anything go then? And the answer is no. So a lot of the time people start to think about extreme things such as interest in children or having sex with animals or wanting to sexually and physically dominate someone without their consent. One thing I would like to clarify is that sex is inherently consensual. If sex is not consensual, that's rape, that's sexual assault, and that's a completely different topic. And for it to be consensual, there needs to be obviously communication between people who are involved in that sexual behavior. And again, children legally and developmentally cannot consent. Therefore, they cannot have sex with an adult and depending on their age, even with themselves, with the same age. Same goes with animals. They cannot consent. So apart from that, 
if we're not talking about rape or sexual assault, if we're talking about sex, which is always consensual, then any value that is important for you and you want to assign to your sexual life and sexuality goes. The other thing that you can do is to acknowledge your sexual goals. So things like self-expression, exploration, giving or sharing pleasure, intimacy, enjoying your body, feeling empowered, powerful. And once you know your sexual goals, then you can decide which options you have to participate in sexual activities that support these goals, provided they fit with your values. The third thing to keep in mind is that when it comes to sexuality in any form, sexual expression, you can trust your inner guide, your intuition, that gut feeling. Many of us haven't learned to connect with our body, to be guided by our body, bodily sensations. But it's a very empowering practice to realize that our body most of the time can tell us what feels good, what feels right for us at that point in time and what doesn't. And once you start to connect with your body more and be guided by it, you realize that your needs and your desires change. And just because you were into something last week doesn't mean that you enjoy this week. So it's that continuous curiosity about what feels right in this point in time. What are my needs? What does my body want or is craving for at this point in time? And then if you're engaging in partnered sex, communicating that wish and that desire and that need to your sexual partner. So as a therapist, my approach is to support people to identify what feels right for them physically, emotionally, sexually and psychologically rather than what is normal. For example, I've worked with many couples that one person has higher libido than the other. And usually the lower libido person questions whether they are normal. And so the way I work with them is to help them understand that their sexual desire and libido and sexual drive is normal for them at that point in time. Now, there may be things that can inhibit our sexual desire and sexual drive, and we may be able to have a look at them and see what may be getting in the way. But my goal in therapy is not to fix their sexual drive. But that doesn't mean that there is not a problem. The problem is the mismatched libido. The problem can be that their sex life is not satisfying or their intimate life is not satisfying anymore and finding ways that they can enjoy each other's company, body and physical closeness in a way that feels fulfilling for both or all people involved. We're going to have a short music break. While you're listening to the music, Here's an invitation to sit back, relax and connect with your body. 
When I initially started this podcast series, I talked about my personal experiences, where I was born, the challenges my family and I experienced throughout my childhood to get education, my first interaction with the kink community, and so on. I stopped telling these little stories at the end of each episode because after a while I wasn't sure if they were interesting. But then in the last month I've received feedback from multiple people that they really enjoyed them and they would like to hear them again. So today I'm going to tell you another part of my story. Where we left this story last time was when I graduated from high school after changing schools 13 times. If you've listened to the previous stories, you would know that because of my parents' religion, we were subjected to persecution in Iran and my sister and I were expelled from multiple schools. I always wanted to study psychology. But unfortunately, again, due to my parents' religion, we were not allowed to attend universities in Iran. So Baha'i people, this is the community, the religious community that my parents belong to, they decided to take charge themselves and create an opportunity for their young ones, for young people to learn. And so Baha'i people from all across Iran who had qualifications from before the um, Islamic Revolution or they had knowledge because they had self-studied for many years, they started sharing their knowledge and experience and expertise with young people and created this underground university. So after graduation from high school, many young people, including myself, would attend these underground classes. And the reason they were underground was that any gatherings that were considered religious were closely monitored by the government. And although these gatherings weren't religious, but because they were organized by a religious community, there was always the risk that the police would break in that particular house that we had gathered in and would take the students and the teachers um, to jail. So it was a mix of anxiety and fear and hope and excitement during the time that I was studying. During this time, a few of my classmates were taken to, by the police to jail without any trial. Um, and it was in my second year that my parents decided to leave Iran. This was particularly because there was added pressure by the government. Many businesses owned by Baha'is were closed down. Many people were arrested and sentenced to jail because of their religious beliefs. So in a period of a few weeks, my parents decided to leave the country. We had to be very discreet. We couldn't say goodbye to many of our friends and family because, again, if the police would find out that we were trying to leave the country, they could stop us and there were consequences. So we packed our bags and I remember that as a teenager, as a 19, 20 year old, I was super excited 
I was sad to leave a lot of friends and family behind, but I think the excitement was more than the sadness and and just imagining a future that I could go to a real university and study was so thrilling. But it would still be years until I could get to a university. And I will tell you more about this in the next episodes. Thank you for tuning in and joining me for another episode. Do join me again for the next episode. Until then, it's goodbye for now.